Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Jim Kelleher, the Chief Legal Officer at Liberty Mutual. Now, it's a great discussion. We cover a whole bunch of topics. Jim tells us what's kept him going at Liberty Mutual for um, for 39 years, believe it or not. I think that's a record on the podcast. We cover topics like legal tech, motivating a team, and Liberty Mutual's um, pro bono work. So it's a great discussion. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Jim Kelleher, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Fantastic. Now, Jim, a career at Liberty Mutual and Chief Legal Officer since 2013. Tell me a little bit about the Jim Kelleher story. Okay. Well, <laughs> the, uh, the journey. The journey. Yeah. Well, it's been a long journey because I've been with Liberty just about 39 years. I went to law school at St. John's University in New York. Yep. And after graduation in passing the bar, I was fortunate enough to have an interview with Liberty. And I had the interview. I didn't feel great about how it went, but <laughs> apparently it went okay because yep. the next day I got a phone call and they asked me if I would join, which was a little surprising to me because, you know, I was fresh out of law school, didn't know much about being a lawyer, and knew even less about being about insurance. And your first, what was the very first position? Was it like an, a, a grad position? or did that, Tell me about the very first thing. Yeah, uh, so the first, very first thing they had me doing was working yep. on coverage opinions, for helping yep. the claim department, which actually was a very interesting place to start because, you know, you end up analyzing insurance policies, which, you know, for me, that was, <laughs> I hadn't read many insurance policies in my life. <laughs> oh, no, I wouldn't have thought so. But it's a great way of learning. It was just a fantastic way of learning the product that Liberty sold at the time. And so I did that for a while. And then I, I was moved over to the litigation group. That's a group of lawyers and paralegals that manage the company's corporate litigation, so litigation directly yep. against the company or, or by the company. And that was really an eye, that was even a much more eye-opening experience because litigation gave me a chance to really understand the company and the business that we were in, because every case was a problem that had to be solved. Yeah. And I learned a lot about what different people did in the company, what their function was, what the processes were. There was some litigation outside of Liberty itself, so sort of industry litigation. So I got to learn quite a bit about the, the insurance industry doing that. And eventually I was promoted to manage that organization. So that was both litigation and coverage. And again, that was my first managerial experience, but I was also pretty deep in the weeds in the, on the cases. So yep. Yep. great learning experience. Yep. Yep. And if you would identify a handful of just kind of seminal moments, turning points in your time at Liberty Mutual, formative moments, if you like, what would they be? Yeah. I mean, on a subject matter basis, one one thing that I have a distinct recollection of was that the general counsel at the time came into my office and asked me, what did I know about antitrust? And I 
said very little. You and shrugged the shoulders, did you? Just did a bit of a shrug of the shoulders. <laughs> very little. And uh, he dropped a complaint on my desk and said, well, are you going to learn? Because we just got into a piece of litigation involving antitrust. And so I literally picked that up and started working with outside law firms to figure out you know, what this is all about. I learned an awful lot about antitrust law in the insurance context, which actually turns out to be quite a specialty because of a law in the States called McCarran-Ferguson. And through the process of that case, which was a very large class action, which took years to resolve, I became essentially the in-house antitrust legal expert by default, because it, yep. as I said, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a prominent area. But it led me to be kind of the person that would, people would go to when they had a, a question that they recognized might have some antitrust implications. And eventually, I went on to be the chair of the ABA's antitrust insurance section, right. which, which was a real great experience to get to know people in the industry, some of colleagues of other companies and things of that nature. So antitrust became a specialty area for me. And it's it, to this day, I still get, you know, occasionally I'll get an antitrust issue presented to me, although I do have lawyers that work for me now that are more yep. up to speed on what's going on in that area. Yep. So that was, that was an important area of the law. But I think I learned that one thing that's valuable for lawyers, any level of experience is to take some risk and pick up something that you don't know much about and trust yourself that you'll have the confidence yeah. to, to learn it. And obviously, there was plenty of resources available for me in terms of outside experts if I needed it. Yeah. But it was a, it was a good opportunity because I, I saw, geez, here's a, here's a need, here's a gap that needs to be filled. And I, not, you know, I essentially began to fill that need for the company. Yep. And, you know, just to, well, one other moment was in the litigation side, mergers and acquisitions was occasionally those transactions would end up in litigation. So I learned a lot about mergers and acquisitions. I learned about the process. You know, yep. I learned about what are the documents, what's the role of the investment banker, what's the role of the financial advisor, what are the role of the lawyers in negotiating the contracts, how do the contracts work. And I got comfortable enough in that area that when Liberty decided to go on a global campaign to acquire companies overseas, I then raised my hand there yep. and said, I'd like to help on that. And they said, that'd be great. So that sent me down the road of working internationally and acquiring uh, starting companies with the business folks in about you know, 20, 20 countries. Yep. That was a phenomenal aspect of my career. And I take it, Jim, that that kind of grounding, if you like, stood you or put you in good, a good position for the kind of trajectory, uh, the career trajectory you had in Liberty Mutual, you know, right, right to get into the CLO position. Is, is that right? That kind that, of international experience, the M&A? That's activity. right. I mean, it yep. was an area that Liberty was expanding into because at that prior to that point, we were largely just a U.S. Uh, workers' compensation carrier. That was yep. what we primarily did at the time. Yep. But to grow the business, we had to develop expertise outside the country, go into other lines of insurance. And so I was fortunate to, you know, as that started to expand, I was able to sort of jump on that wagon and, and join the business folks in, in determining, you know, 
what were good companies to buy, what were bad companies to buy, where can we start from scratch? Countries, you know, all over the world, China and Vietnam, yep. India, all to Latin America and, and Europe. You know, it was interesting. That was a phenomenally interesting experience for me. So, Jim, 39 years at Liberty Mutual, what, what's kept you there? What is it about your role, the position, the people? I think that it's it's been, I mean, for me, it's been, first of all, I, you know, when I was a kid, I never dreamed of becoming an insurance company lawyer. Yep. But after I landed a job in an insurance company, I learned that it's so much more than insurance. So it's a, it's a, it's a financial service organization that sells products that help people protect their assets. It, the company has always been steeped in solid values and a, and a great mission. The people that I've interacted with to this day have been just phenomenal. You know, we do a, a very, um, we, did a, we do a very good job of hiring, vetting employees, making sure that we have lawyers that get lawyers and paralegals and other specialists yeah. that are going to really help the company move forward. And typically, you know, we do see people that are going to be highly collaborative and motivated. And so the people have been a big reason why I've stayed. And in my jobs, I've been able to interact with people at all levels in the organization from, you know, literally the CEO to, you know, the guy in the mail room. Yep. So, yep. It's and up and down, sideways, and so lots of uh, relationships. Yeah, it's been it's been fun. Yeah, I think if it wasn't fun, and you know, it would be a different story. It but it's be always been fun. Yeah, and talk a little bit about the the, the people side, the culture, the the team building, because clearly, I expect you'll have had you know quite a number of different experiences as to what's worked, what hasn't, when you're building your own team, for example, what are the things that you kind of focus on when recruiting, when building a team? What's important to you? Well, first of all, all companies, financial services and otherwise, are in a, a war for talent. Yeah. It's an area that's of huge importance to us. We try to make sure we find people that are going to complement you know, the legal department, are going to be critical thinkers are going to be very collaborative, are going to be team members, technically competent, a level of, it's it depending upon the job, you know, maybe, maybe you need some insurance expertise, but, you know, high integrity, things of those nature, it, it, it's yeah. kind of a combination of things that we look for. And obviously having a diverse uh, workforce, making sure that you surround yourself with people that don't always think like I think. Um, yep. and, you know, I'm quite proud of that. Actually, we have a we have a fear, fairly high level of diversity on my management team. It's a strong mix of of women, people of color, and you know, surround yourself with great people makes the job yeah that much more fun. To be honest yeah. about it, but we do need to you know it isn't just diversity; it's also inclusiveness. Yeah. Making sure people at all levels feel comfortable coming to work, enjoy the people that they're with, and that people are given the opportunity to come, to, you know, as they say, bring, bring your full self. Yeah, bringing your best self. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lots of, there's lots of, I mean, the talent is important. And if we don't, if we don't have an inclusive environment, people wouldn't stay. Talk a little bit about the, the role of the GC. How 
how, how have you seen it change in your time? I'd be interested as to you know, how different it's been in the last, let's say, the last part of your career than the earlier part of your career. And I'd also like to get your thoughts of what what you think it might look like and change in the future too. So tell, talk a little bit about that. Well, one, I mean, obviously when I started at Liberty, this is, I hate to say it like this because it's, but it's true, it's, it's pre-computers. We weren't doing pod, podcasts on. on Certainly iPod. weren't doing this, were we? <laughs> That's right. And so obviously technology has been a huge yeah. piece of the change and it will continue to be ever so important that you know you invest in the right technology that you provide the training that's necessary for employees to become adept at using the tools so that i think also you know we have our business we're heavily regulated we're regulated by we're now operating in 30 countries we have 50 states of regulation in the states plus a federal government a set of federal laws that govern us and in all the jurisdictions we're in overseas uh, we have, you know, significant regulation. So, and that's not, that's not going away and I, it's increasing. I mean, the privacy laws themselves have become significant challenges. Yeah. Um, and getting a global organization in line with the challenges of, of GDPR and other emerging privacy laws is, is a real challenge. And, you know, we, fortunately we've, we put a lot of good people on it, and we feel good about where we are. But I don't think that's going to. I think the future is going to bring more of that. More complexity, you think? More complexity. Yeah, definitely. So, and how do you see that impacting on uh, on the chief legal officer role? What they've got to focus on, what they're prioritizing. So you need to make sure you're going to surround yourself with great people that yep. will be able to help you execute on the compliance issues. That are required because of those these laws, but not only in the United States, we have to have people situated overseas, lawyers, which we do in about twenty of our countries, that feel part of a sort of a one-team environment. Even though you're a lawyer for Liberty and you're sitting in Thailand, or you're sitting in Bogota, or you're sitting yeah. in Madrid, you feel like you're part of one team, and you know that there are resources and there are people that you can go to. To get the help you need to help deal with the complexity of the regulatory environment in, in those jurisdictions, it's that's critical, really. So we spend a lot of time reaching out, having people come into into Boston, where we're based, visiting them overseas, and making sure they they have access to the resources they need. Yeah. And we're, we kept it. We, we, we're structured like many global companies where all the lawyers, regardless of where you sit, report in eventually to the general counsel or to the chief legal officer. Right. To give them a level object of objectivity and independence in their local markets. So that's because, you know, honestly, lawyers in far-flung places are our eyes and ears, and, and we need to make sure they they see us as people that can help that they can talk to about issues that might be arising in, in their jurisdictions. Right. So did I get that right? So, so the their direct reports to you are they the the lawyers in the various in the various jurisdictions? 
not well they're not well they're not direct because they got people that they report to but those people those people report to people that report to me me but, right, yeah. but yeah they're yeah. all within the same department yeah yes yeah. and you know that that's another interesting challenge because we have people that you know speak multiple languages fortunately most of the lawyers overseas speak english which makes things a lot easier but yes we that's the model that we run just because we, we want to give folks the ability to push back on the local businesses if something is presented to them that they don't feel comfortable with and, and they have this somebody to go to outside of the business to get assistance. You, you touched on technology there and I know that uh, you kind of keep up with the legal tech scene. Tell, tell me how you've seen technology change the delivery of legal services recently and, and what you think the future might look like there, both from in, an in-house perspective, I suppose, and an outside counsel perspective. What are your thoughts on the impact of technology there? Yeah, well, in-house, we I have a, a fairly significant legal operations team, yep. which is headed up not by a lawyer but by an engineer. In his On his team, he has data scientists. We have systems people. We have project managers, we have auditors, we have a whole collection of professionals that aren't necessarily lawyers. And they help us develop the tools, the legal technology tools that we need to run the legal department. And the legal department in a big insurance company like Liberty Mm -hmm. isn't just your traditional corporate staff, it's also a large, what we call field legal staff, which are trial lawyers situated around the United States that represent customers uh, when customers are sued and covered for the, for the claims under their automobile policy or automobile or homeowner policies. Yep. So we have a large commitment to providing all of our people with efficient technology, technology that's going to help them do their job better, not to replace them, but to help them. And that's something that I think we sort of crossed, we've crossed the bridge on that Fear of technology with employees. I think people in large now do understand that the technology is a good way of assisting them and getting their jobs done. So managing the cultural issues around technology is as important yep. as the technology itself. So we've built some tools that we have a self-service tool that we built for non-disclosure agreements. So no longer does the client have to call a lawyer to you know yep. draft an NDA. They push a few buttons and an NDA appears. You know, if they want to tinker with it or change it in any material way, they'll they'll need to get legal advice. But in large part, NDA is now completely self-service. Outside, we bought some technology that allows us to produce legal pleadings incredibly rapid pace. So they, with the oversight of lawyers, but the the tools will generate answers and discovery requests. Right, based upon uh-huh. Uh, I'm, I'm going to take a guess here. Are they my friends at Legal Nation? Or yes, that's right. Excellent. That's a, a, a big shout out to the Legal Nation team. Yeah. Then. They no, do that's, a great been a, that's been a game changer for us in the States. Fantastic. You know, again, you have to have lawyers and paralegals overseeing the output. But things like that make a huge difference. Yep. So we have an, at any given time, we have a number of projects. We have, other, we have an ongoing project with MIT to help develop some additional technology for use in the, in the company. 
but so it's, a co- you know, it's, com- it's a combination, is it, Jim, of um, in-house built tech as well as externally sourced legal tech. You, exactly. You've got a combination of both, right? It, it's a combination of that. Yep. And, you know, technology, I mean, I, I felt it was, I mean, I wanted to be conversant in natural process, AI concepts. I enrolled in a program at MIT myself and took that over this over the this course of you know many months just to kind of get schooled and yep. what are the tools that are available and how could we apply those to our processes and, and I've encouraged and many of my other lawyers have also taken that course so it's ongoing education I do think in the future and that's not too far away I think lawyers really do need to understand they don't need to do it, but they need to understand coding, how it works. They need to be good at agile working methodologies with systems development. A lot of things that prior GCs didn't have to deal with because it just didn't exist at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and tell me about the challenges. What do you think are the what are the most significant challenges around legal technology that, that you've experienced so far and that you still think are out there that need to be overcome in order to, let's say, in order to get the fully fully realise the benefits? Is it all people? Is it is it cultural? What what what, what do you it's, think? It's, it is? I would I I think it's it's a combination of of culture. It's it's about. Again, as I said earlier, it's about getting people comfortable in the use of the technology and the adoption of the tools that we've developed for their use yep. to take away the fear that you know they're going to get replaced by a bot. And those sorts of things, I think once you get over that, employees generate all kinds of ideas yep. for process efficiencies using automation. And some of our greatest ideas come from our employees, you know, I, I don't sit around my office try to think of things that we go out and ask people, yeah. what are the challenges you're facing? How could we make it better? What sort of technology might be useful for solving your problems? And then with a legal operations group, you know, we, we work to try to solve that. I mean, I, it's become actually the way we work. Lawyers now in paralegals and and administrative folks that see issues, they think about technology as a solution, and they'll, you know, call someone in our operations group and say, "I have a problem. I'd like to talk to you about it and see if there's some solutions." Right. That's so where you want to be. Yeah, you want to have people being proactive. Yeah, and I suppose a first port of call if if the team is coming to the legal ops team looking for a solution or a technology solution, that must mean you've made some significant in, inroads. Yeah. Yeah. But what about the, have you experienced the impact of technology on your relationships with outside counsel? Has that been an issue? It depends on the firm and the firms that are more engaged on technology in their own firms, really the firms that we find easier to work with. And a good example of this is, you know, when I started, you know, if you had a large case with, I don't know, 300,000 documents, you know, you hired a law firm to send in paralegals to, to go page by page to yeah. identify what might be relevant. And today... Yeah, and that uh, was one expensive exercise, wasn't it, Jim? It was. <laughs> it was never done overnight. You know, now we have tools that, that sift through documents in batches, identify 
responsiveness in firms that skilled at using those tools are comfortable that the tools are going to produce the correct results, encourage the use of those tools, which is, you know, for us, at the end of the day, a, a big money saver. Yeah. Yeah. We've outsourced uh, some of that as well. We've used, one of the things that's different, I don't know if it's that much different, although it's much more in focus, is we outsource more. We, we, we have alternative legal service providers yeah. that, that we use for various tasks within yeah. of litigation. We, we, use out, we use some lawyers overseas to do some processing. We've used a lot of technology outside building to help get things done. And so we no longer think about having to go build something to solve a problem. If it's yep. available on the market, maybe it needs to be customized. But we were m- much more apt to, to utilize those types of resources. And law firms that recommend those resources or use those resources themselves are uh, really the more efficient law firms, which is important when you're under pressure to, to save on legal expenses in particular. So that sort of partnership is, is, is the most valuable. And again, projecting forward and thinking what the future might kind of look like in the delivery of legal services and the, and the impact that technology will have there. Have you got any thoughts is it going to be more fun being a lawyer? Is it going to be more stressful? Better to be working in-house, better to be working for a, for a law firm. <clears throat> any, any thoughts around that? Well, I, you know, I think, I mean, I'm a big, I'm a big supporter of in-house legal departments. <laughs> I haven't spent yeah, my whole life Of yet. course. <laughs> but, you know, we've in-sourced as much as we can. And yep. we hire the people that we need to hire to get the work done. It's done much, it's done very efficiently. It's done with a close connection with the clients in-house. If you have a lawyer that's working with them day in and day out, they're in touch with the business model, the business objectives of that particular organization. The technology around that to help facilitate getting work done is critical. And we, you know, we have days that we set aside twice a year where we bring in vendors, uh, technology, particularly small yeah. startups that, you know, Invented something that they think might be useful, and you know we do a little bit of due diligence beforehand. If we think it, if our people think it might be useful, we bring them in. We have them go through their presentations in front of lawyers and other folks that want to sit in, and then we we make selections on those vendors. I think that's likely to accelerate the picking and choosing amongst providers of technology support yep. to help you reduce your cost. And as you reduce your cost. It's, it must have some impact on, on outside law firms. Yep. Uh, switch gears a little bit. Anything about the role of the general counsel or the chief legal officer that is kind of accepted in the industry as, as the norm or as a best practice, which you disagree with? I call this section the mythbuster section, Jim. So is, is yeah. there anything out there that you think is, is a myth, well accepted, but it's actually a myth? Well, I don't know if this is well accepted or even a right. myth, but I think I might have been under this illusion when I first started that this that the general counsel knew everything. Yeah, which, which I can assure you is wrong. Yeah, I think one of the important things for general counsels, but also for individual lawyers at all levels, is is developing the comfort to say I don't know, but I can find out, and I will get back to you with an answer. But 
saying you don't know is just a critical trait for yeah. good lawyering. The CLO should only be a lawyer. Stay in your lane. Yep. That's a myth. I think CLOs today are, are called upon to, yes, to be a good lawyer, but also to be a wise counselor, to provide businesses with their perspectives, not just legal perspective, but their business perspectives for their, their views of what you believe to be common sense solutions to problems you know, that may be completely devoid of, of legal issues. So I've certainly experienced that. I, I, I have a, a great working relationship with my peers who run all the businesses and with the CEO that I feel more often than not I'm, I'm just called upon to offer my advice on non-legal things as, as I am legal things. So yep. it could be social issues. It could mm-hmm. be any number of, of topics that come up nowadays. The, the other myth that the other thing you hear a lot, and it makes me a little bit, I don't know, annoyed, is the legal department's the department of no. The department of no, okay. The department of <laughs> yeah. no. You don't, want to be no. You don't want to be known as the department of no, do you? <laughs> no, you don't. I mean, and, and fortunately we're not, and I don't think that at least a lot of departments that are worth their salt ever are because I think it's the lawyers who help the businesses achieve their objectives and by and large, you know, obviously you do you do it in a way that's legally compliant. Yep. But you do help them. And when they run up against a roadblock, you have to explain, you know, because like our industry is in such a heavily regulated industry, not every bright idea people have can be accomplished without obtaining regulatory change. And sometimes that's the solution. Mm-hmm. If we want to do something that's against the current regulations, you know, we we will bring in our public affairs lawyers to address the issue with the state regulators and state legislatures and state insurance commissioners and see if there's another way of, of dealing with it. So we wouldn't be in business long if we were the department of no. We wouldn't be providing economic value. So I think that's a big myth. And, I, and I, you know, there is more and more pressure on law departments to deliver economic value. Yeah. And so just like every piece of the business has to demonstrate how you're contributing to the bottom line, and so do we. And we actually pride ourselves quite a bit in you know, how much of that we can actually show the boss, the CEO, yep. uh, when asked, or the board. So that, so I, I would say those are three, the three of the big myths that I've seen. I'm sure there's more. Yeah, no, there certainly are. Jim, I know that you're passionate also in relation to pro bono work. Can you talk a little bit about the some of the pro bono initiatives that, that perhaps you and Liberty Mutual have been involved in? Yes. Yeah, pro bono is an area that I'm proud to say we've we've been recognized for, for doing, particularly in the Boston and Seattle and Plano communities where we have larger populations of lawyers. And it isn't just legal work. Sometimes it's educational work. We One of the big programs that we do in Boston is a program called Discovering Justice where we adopt an eighth grade class from a Boston City School. Right. Uh, we bring them in for the semester once a week. Uh, we teach the kids how to stand on their feet, how to ad- address a judge, argue properly. And at the end of the semester, the federal courts in Boston, the federal courthouse in Boston, and, and a number of the federal judges uh, contribute their time to actually hold these mock trials or mock appeals. Oh, and, fantastic. Yeah. And the students come in and Hopefully they've been well prepared. 
And it's not just Liberty, it's it's a number of law firms in the Boston area that, that also adopt these classes. So they come in yep. as a bit of a competition. That's first of all, that's huge for these children. I mean it's yeah. who need to see something need to see the positive side of legal system. Legal system, yeah. Yeah. You know, outside of what they may be seeing either on TV or even sometimes yeah. unfortunately in their own families. Yeah. And we've been we've been doing this for, for many years. It's and you know, eventually every now and then one of these kids, a light goes off and, you know, they they think that they might want to become lawyers and yep. some of them actually do. Yeah. So but we we provide services for abused women, eviction, help tenant landlord tenant services, mediation services. I mean we have a whole range of immigration issues, a whole range of programs for our lawyers and paralegals to uh, participate in if they're interested. And we do encourage people to be interested in it. We have goals that we set for participation. And you know, by and large, it's a, it's a fun thing to do. It helps lawyers and paralegals develop other skills that they may not get in the confines of their, of their yeah. job. So yeah, so we're big proponents of it. It's, it's just a great way to get back. And fortunately, you know, the company supports the time and effort and resources that we put into that. I think it's it's valued um, at all levels of the organization. And speaking of giving back, I'm interested, I mean, I expect you will have mentored many attorneys during your time, or yeah, more than just attorneys, paralegal people in your team during your time. What's the most common advice that you've given as a mentor? What do you find yourself saying over and over again? Yeah. <laughs> sometimes I think I say this too much, but I'll say right. it as well. Because a lot of people say, what do I need to do? What do I need to do to be successful? Mm-hmm. And my answer to that is, what, what you need to do to be successful here or anywhere is relatively simple. First of all, you have to be competent. You have to develop the technical skills. You need to be a critical thinker. You need to be a good communicator, orally, verbally, those sorts of things that are what you would expect of a lawyer. Yep. But beyond that, to me, there's two things. And I, and I say, this is what I say. You, you need to be liked and you need to be trusted. Because you can have all those competent skills, those technical competencies, but if you're not liked and not trusted, yep. you're going to fail. And when yep. I mean, what I mean by liked is people want to work with you. They want to come to you. They want to come in and tell you their problems and feel as if you're going to help them. Yeah. So that level of relationship is critical and it doesn't necessarily even have to be in the legal yeah. space. And the other thing is trust. And trust is built up over time. Trust is a series of conduct that where you actually get back to people to help them solve their problem. You deliver timely advice. You provide your best thinking. People will come to trust you when they come to you. Yep. And they'll come back when the next one. And so you build, you build upon this. doesn't happen overnight. It takes no. time, like anything. Yep. But I think if you, can, if you can acquire all the basic skills and then understand that being liked and trusted is paramount to your success, yep. And that's really what I would focus on. I mean, that's, I don't know where I learned that, but that's kind of what I yeah. sort of gleaned. And the trusting, I think, it, it is incredibly important when you talk 
particularly when, you, when you're younger and you're not really thinking necessarily about your reputation longer term and you might be making, let's say, shorter term decisions, not really thinking about the impact. What I often do say is every interaction you have, every time you meet someone, whatever it might be, you leave what I call kind of a footprint <laughs> and it's really important to recognise that that kind of just builds over time and that yeah. becomes part of you and it becomes part of how people see you and it's critically important and you're absolutely right. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen um, overnight. And I think as you grow in one, one of your, as you grow in responsibilities around leadership, you know, what you say and what you do matters. People, yep. people at all levels are watching and I'm keenly aware of that. So, you know, we do a lot of, you know, practice what you preach. That works just fine. Jim, what have you spent too much time worrying about in the past, which has been time not well spent? Well, I, you know, I, I grew up, uh, I think I worried too much about things that are never going to come to pass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. I, I've, kind of, I've kind of learned that catastrophic thinking isn't healthy. Yeah. Isn't healthy. So not everything is going to end up in bad results. And really actually does it ever. And so I've tried to condition myself over the years to become less of a catastrophic thinker. Thinker. <laughs> I haven't yeah. heard that term before, but I kind of like that, less yeah. of a catastrophic thinker. And, um, um, and so I think, I think I've wasted probably too much time worrying about things that yeah. I didn't worry about. But other than that, I, I can't think of much. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, when you're 25 years old, you, I think you, you, there's natural issues around confidence and and, yeah. you know, do I have really the skills to become a liked and trusted lawyer? But give yourself time and, and you'll see yeah. that you do. And the other thing is, and this permeates your career, is, is always we're, uh, operate with integrity. Yep. Because as a lawyer in particular, if you lose your reputation or your integrity, you might as well come back very hard. Yeah. yeah. So that's advice that you know you, you give not only your lawyers but your children and, and uh, yeah. open sticks and just closing out jim what are you most proud of both personally and professionally i mean personally i i have a fantastic family i have a yeah. i have a great wife and i have two fantastic children one one of whom is a lawyer i get she came to that conclusion on her own i think did she <laughs> I hope she's forgiven you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, professionally, I, I I feel like I I've made a you know I've always been committed to doing trying to do the right thing, and yeah. I think you know I feel like I've helped build over my entire career a very a great legal department, you know, global legal department with you know twelve hundred lawyers and another eight hundred staff, and I'm just proud of like where that sits in the spectrum of, of big global law departments. Well, Jim, a lot to be proud of, a, a stellar career at Liberty Mutual. Thank you so much for making the time to join us. I've had an absolute blast. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T, 
www.thepodcastnetwork.com. We'd love to hear from you.